0: Again, we're in, in uh, John chapter 16, and the text that we read in the Bible reading is, is the text we're going to be dealing with. I'm going to make this message, however, in two parts because it got a little long on me. And I said, I, I don't want to keep you for, for too long. So, <laughs> we are uh, we're beginning actually in the uh, 25th verse. Of the 16th chapter. And this is the last section there of his final discourse. And that finishes what the disciples needed to hear before he left them. This is this whole upper room discourse and this uh, talking to them as they journeyed there from the upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, all of that conversation here is, has one design, and that one design is to prepare them. For his departure, which was going to happen that night. And the main and the main theme of this farewell council is joy. It's the joy of the Lord. And not only is it the joy of the Lord, but it's the joy of the Lord in tribulation. You know, the Prophets talk about the coming great tribulation. Well, the simple truth of the matter is all our whole existence on this earth is tribulation. It is one trial and difficulty. It is fighting with ourselves and fighting with uh, issues in our family. It's fighting with issues of our work. It's fighting with issues of our community. It's fighting with issues in our government. It's fighting with... Issues everywhere. It's uh, dealing with these bodies that we've been given. When they have sickness and weakness and so forth. It's dealing with our own uh, incompetence in many things. It frustrates us and makes us angry. All of these things are tribulation. But Jesus says real, genuine, born-again children of God, are to experience the joy of the Lord in the midst of this tribulation. And this is a this is a real enigma. How is this possible? That's what he's trying to tell them now before he departs. In his leaving, he's, he's telling them there will be a day in which believers would, experience, would uh, be better off when he's gone then they were with him there now that that was very difficult for the disciples to to understand they've spent th- over 3 years with Jesus walking by his side watching him teach or listening to him teach and watching him perform miracles now he's telling them he's leaving and that, and that's further compounded by the fact that their conception of a, of the Messiah is now suddenly being disrupted in their minds. They they thought the Messiah was going to be there now forever, permanently, and he's telling them he's leaving them. That's that was hard for them to grasp. But that day, that. Jesus spoke of, would be the day of the Spirit. And in that day, they would understand then what God was doing. Well, what day is that? Well, that's when the Holy Spirit came, on the day of Pentecost. That's why he tells them, don't do anything, just just wait in Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. Then you'll be my witnesses. So then secondly here, the main theme of the text is that coming day. Our text right here. The, main theme, uh, the theme of his discourse is joy, but the main theme of, of our text this morning is, is that is the day that he spoke of, that day, the, the age of the Spirit when the believers would function in a way that will glorify God and advance his kingdom and honor his Son. In the last verse, g there verse number thirty three the lord emphasized that in him and that's that's very important to consider in him believers would have peace but in the world they would have tribulation so here's a connect there's a connection here between joy and peace as well when we have peace we We tend to have joy at at the same time. Peace and joy are kind of sisters in this thing. So they would have, have tribulation, but in that tribulation, as they would have joy, they would also have this peace. And the reason is because as saints, as children of God, as believers in Jesus Christ, they will share in Christ's victory. He says... I have overcome the world. Now he he has yet to yet to go through the cross but in Christ's mind it's a done deal. It's already a finished work. Which brings us to third to the third thing here and that is that Jesus came into the world to secure his own. And here's another very interesting thing. We are in we are in tribulation. And all of us have a tendency to react to the various things in our life. And some of us do better than others. And some of us, you know, don't, don't, don't do so well. But Jesus assures us that if we belong to him, he will keep us to the end. He will not let us. Go astray. He will not let us fall or fail. He secures us. So now that he was about to leave them in the world, he was leaving them in the world for their for their benefit. You know, God could, could keep us by just taking us out when we get when we're born again. Poof, we're gone. We're up there with Christ. We wouldn't have to worry about any more sin or s- sorrow or sickness. But he leaves us here. Just like he left the disciples here. And it was not for their harm, but for their benefit. And also, it would enable them to see and understand how he secures his own. We sang that uh, song, The King of Love, My Shepherd is. Really, that's a... The song is written on Psalm 23. Just think of it. Psalm 23. I mean, that is probably the most well-known psalm, Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He restores my soul. Now, He leads me. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. That's the tribulation. I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and staff comfort me. So these verses then review this purpose. and That Jesus here is gaining a people for himself. Who would continue his work in his absence. And what a privilege. These people are now going to be used by that very same Jesus in the process of gaining a people for himself. The people of God will be his agents to multiply sons and daughters. That's why he said, you're going to be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and under the uttermost parts of the earth. When we belong to Jesus Christ, we are his witnesses in this world. And he, by... Us, he gains sons and daughters. That's a, that's a hard thing to, you know, to figure out, but it's, that is a fact. So now in today's text, Jesus also warned his disciples that they needed far more than they thought they had to live out God's purpose in faith and embrace. It's interesting to listen to this exchange that goes on here. And we want to touch upon that. But uh, their their attitude right now, before the coming of the Holy Spirit, is one of self confidence. How how Peter boldly declared, uh, "Though all else fate and leave you, I'll never leave you. I'll even go to to death for you." we'll, we'll touch on that anyway, but. They were rock sure that they would stand for Jesus no matter what. But their true character, and here's the point, their true character proved otherwise. We can be very braggadocious and, bravo, and with bravado there about how we're going to do what we're going to do and how we're going to do it and so forth. But when, the, when, when we're faced with the issue, sometimes we don't do too well. So there's where we need to learn how to depend upon the Lord, because the Lord promises us that that when when He is in us, then we will be successful in what He has called us to do. God had a plan here to, that would change them for good, but that night they're going to it's going to be very difficult for them. It also warns us see this the scriptures weren't written for them it was written for our uh, them alone it was written for us for our admonition on whom the ends of the of the world are come so the scriptures there have are given so that all believers might receive the admonition from the things spoken to the disciples and it warns the saints that they are not above the failures of the disciples we we read about how they failed and we say, Ah, boy, I tell you what, I'm better than that. No, you're not. No, you're not. So let's get into this. And the first thing I want, to, want you to see in these verses is assessment and remedy. Jesus is assessing the things. And he is going to share with them the remedy for the, for the problems that he sees. And they're struggling to try to figure it out. What is this that he is saying to us? You know, it's, they're not comprehending it. And uh, what, uh, what we find here in verse 25, let me read verse 25 again. I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. Says, up to this time, I've, I've been speaking to you in figures of speech. Now, we need to understand what he's saying there, because it's kind of a, what? You know, when you read that, you're, you're asking yourself, what, what's going on here? What's he talking about? The King James Version has Proverbs there instead of figures of speech, as the ESV does. Other translations use parables to translate this Greek word. I think, it's, I think uh, all of them miss it a little bit. I mean, it, it, they do, that word can be used in this way, but I think here uh, there is a little different attitude. I, I would uh, argue that it should be translated here, dark sayings. I have said these things to you in dark sayings, but the hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in dark sayings. And I'll explain that here in a second, but Jesus here used this word and the disciples can't understand what God is doing in Christ and coming to the earth. See, that's the problem. It doesn't matter what he said. The Greek word here refers to obscure utterances, something that when spoken is not readily understood And needs considerable explanation. So we can look at it like this. Some speakers may fail in their words and may not convey the thought intended. That's one problem. Sometimes when somebody says something, you hear something entirely different than what they intended for you to hear. And in that case the problem may be with the speaker, it may be with the hearer. And that's the great problem of communication. The, the, the importance of making things clear. The speaker needs his audience to understand what he means. And however, when the speaker uses obscure utterances on purpose, then we, we, we wonder, well, why? And, or in this case, it may be that that the translators are the problem. That the, that if the translators here had perhaps used a different word, then then uh, it would not have obscured what was spoken. That's not the case here. Jesus deliberately obscured the meaning, and I, I'll give you one example here of parables parables were intended to obscure i i I don't know how many commentators i've read who said that jesus spoke to the common people in parables because he wanted to make it clear to them what he was teaching and i'm thinking to myself these commentators have not read the scriptures (laughs) They haven't read the they haven't read what Jesus said in Matthew in Matthew 13 when the disciples asked him there why do you speak to them in parables? And Jesus' response to them was that it is given to you to know the uh, mysteries of the kingdom. But to them it is not given. So he spoke to them in parables to deliberately obscure the the understanding and hide from them the truth that was because of their hard and sinful hearts. Believers, on the other hand, are blessed because they could understand. And then Jesus takes takes patience there to explain to them more fully what he was saying to them in the parable. So here's the problem. The Greek word used here has a bit of a different emphasis, I said, than parables, proverbs, or figures of speech. It is is a saying out of the usual course or deviating from the usual manner of speaking. A dark saying. Something that needs explanation. And it's used of any utterance. Which is obscure to the understanding, and here's now part of it is due to this uh, to, to spiritual condition. For example, he spoke to them in parables, and they didn't understand the parables because of their hard hearts. Paul was very clear about that in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, where he when he wrote, "The natural person, the soukikos, that's in the Greek there, the soukikos, soulish person." That's a person whose spirit has not been reborn. A person who has not been born again is a psuchikos. The psuchikos person. It says, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. First of all, he doesn't accept them. And then second of all, they are folly to him. And then thirdly, He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So when a Sukikos person comes to the scriptures, he says, they don't make any sense to me. He doesn't want them to make any sense to him either because he he outright rejects them first. It's, It's interesting today in the the debate there over uh, abortion. I I saw one fellow respond on on Facebook there, "Keep your God out of my life and out of my government." That's that's the attitude. That's the attitude of the unsaved man. Keep your God out of my life. And keep him out of your government. I don't, my government. I don't want, I don't want divine principles functioning in the government. And you can see what's happening in the world today because we've thrown the principles of God out. We have murder in the streets. We have wholesale robbery. And people don't want to enforce the laws because those are principles that come from God. And you take away the moral principles, and the whole thing—I mean, everything—now anything is right, and that is the issue. And so, what what uh, is referred to here is that it, that the fact that the disciples don't. Really, don't have a spiritual understanding yet. They're in a in a in a real effect, in a real sense. The disciples here are Old Testament saints. They're leaning on the truth of the Word of God. Their 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 faith. The Holy Spirit is is with them in a sense, because He said He you know Him for He has He dwells with you, but shall be in you. So there's a real sense in which they they have the Holy Spirit to some degree, but not like they will after he has been given on Pentecost. And that's the issue. So this is what Christ is trying to deal with them now. So that's why it's called here, he's telling them, "I'm I'm speaking to you in these dark sayings. It's not... He's, he's doing it intentionally, but, it, on, but it, on the other hand, it's really due to the fact that they do not have the spiritual capacity to understand it, and this is what he's seeking to provoke in them. So they'll ask him. And, which they did. The disciples said, what is this he says? <laughs> huh? And But here's the point. They're talking to themselves. They're not ta- they're not asking him outrightly. That's why he says to them, they were saying, "What does he mean?" A little while, and they're talking among themselves and Jesus wanted to, wanted and knew that they wanted to ask him. He knew that they wanted to ask him. They wanted to, but they weren't they, they just didn't have the courage apparently to ask him. And that's part of their pride their pride says if we ask him we're going to look dumb (laughs) and i'm not not going to ask about that because it'll make me look stupid and i think that was the point here too so jesus then said uh, is this what you want to ask me here (laughs) so jesus dark sayings here now uh, relate to the father because that's what he says here I do not say to you that I will ask the excuse me. Uh, I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. So this is about the Father and Christ's hour. See, there's a there's, a, there's another interesting thing here. We, there's His hour. Which has now come upon them, and he explains to them in effect, I have been able to speak to you in what seems to you to be only obscure language. Maybe they were just plain they, they were plain utterances to the spiritually alert person, but what he said went completely over the disciples' heads, and it was now imperative that they understand. See, Jesus said, Now you have to understand this. Notice how God works. It's not He just doesn't zap you and oh, ding, ding. Oh, there I know. No, He makes us go through the process of getting that understanding. We person, we have to struggle. See, but it's important for us to understand it. That's why He tells us get in the scriptures, and I and I will argue t- to you again the more you read the scriptures, the more your understanding will be enabled to grasp the scriptures. That's a work of the Spirit. And one of the things that they needed to understand was his hour. He had previously argued that his hour had not yet come several times. For example, in chapter 2, he, she told them they don't have any wine. They were at the wedding feast and they ran out of wine. So she... she Tells Jesus, and and his response to her was, Woman, what does this have to do with me? And, and then he said, My hour is not yet come. Now, in a sense, that's a dark saying itself. What, did, what does he mean by that? Why does it not have anything to do with him? Because what, he, what did he do? He immediately went to work and told him Fill up these uh, large jars with water. And then uh, dip into them and go serve them to the Lord of the Feast. Don't start with the back row there just to test it out, but take it to the first guy. And he had changed the water into wine. That's a miracle. But look at what he said to her. What does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Or in chapter seven, the temple guard failed to, to arrest him, and he's still out there preaching because his hour had not yet come. Chapter seven verse thirty. And again in chapter twelve, Gentiles came to Jesus when they, they were at the at Jerusalem there at the feast to worship, and they wanted they came to Jesus' disciples and they asked to see Jesus. And Jesus, Jesus' response to this was, in chapter 12, verse 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So up until that point, the hour has not come. Oh, now the hour has come. And now what, that's what we find here as well. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And it's brought up here again because His hour was imminent. His impending, this hour had to do with his impending cross work and its results were, were the purpose for which he came into the world. He must redeem a people for his name. He then promised the Holy Spirit so that his people would have his presence to enable them in their day, in that day. So we got these two things. Here that have to be understood and distinguished. This hour referring to Christ and his cross work. And in that day when the disciples would take the effects of or the results of that cross work into the world through the power of the Holy Spirit of God. His death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension to the right hand on on high was this hour. And there he would do intercessory work on behalf of his people, which includes the gift of the Holy Spirit. And when that day, when that occurred, the disciples, and consequently their converts and all followers of Jesus would have their day. And that day, they would understand what Jesus wanted to convey to them about the Father. See, you see the point? Fellas, you need to understand, you're, you're not getting it now, but you will. You will when the Spirit comes. So this is what Jesus meant when he said, I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, or obscure utterances, or dark sayings here, but will tell you plainly about the Father. And why? Because they would have an interpreter, the one called alongside to make everything clear to them. And this was what it was all about. In this day, that's verse 26, is a reference then to the major benefit of His hour, which is the coming of the Holy Spirit. He ascended on high, next to to the Father's right hand, and then He is poured forth this as Peter said there in acts 2 which you now see in here. you know this Bible is an obscure book it's an obscure utterance to the average Joe on the streets he cannot make heads or tails of it and many professed believers don't understand it or or they don't bother to try to understand it. however those who love Christ, those who belong to him, those who are part of his, kingdom his plan and his purpose they do they have an understanding when they read the scriptures because the spirit of god according to verse number 13 guides them in all truth not into but in all truth and uh, and it's it doesn't come all at once either it's like uh, isaiah spoke there in isaiah 28 and verse 10 Precept upon precept, line upon line, here a little, there a little. But eventually it all comes together. And that day also involves an understanding of prayer. And I think this is the main issue here. What Jesus taught here is essential. And what is it it's asking in Jesus' name? How many times did he state that in this final discourse? If you ask anything in my name, the Father will give it. And as I emphasized before, the heart of prayer is asking. It's not, it's not worship, it's not praise, and adoration, or any of those other things. They're, they're connected with it. In fact, all every time you... You read a prayer in the Scriptures, it, 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 it's first couched in praise and adoration of God. But that is not prayer. The prayer is asking. In fact, I really believe that's what it's about. Uh, remember the, 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 the two words found in our text here we talked about last week. Ask. The disciples asked Him. They were wanting to ask Him. That's a, that is a different word here than the, than the word Jesus uses when he says, in that day you will ask, or ask, a command here. Uh, the one word means to request information, to ask something. I want to know something, so you ask. So, so the, uh, the, the disciples ask, what does this mean? Verse 18, They were requesting information. Jesus did not use this word in verse 26. In that day you will ask in my name. You will ask in my name. This is a different word entirely. What does this word mean? It means to solicit something. To request a supply. Prayer is asking for God for what we need to solicit something needed. Prayer is asking God for what we need. He previously addressed this issue in in verses 24 and 23 and 24. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, He will give it you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Notice, here's joy again. We're in the middle of tribulation. We have need. We ask the Lord, He supplies the need. We have joy in the tribulation because He answers our prayers. And He continued that emphasis in verse 25 saying that at the time was coming when the saints would need to ask for things in His name. I'm going to go away. You're not going to be able to communicate with me directly, but you can ask the Father in my name, and He'll give it to you. And this has been emphasized again and again throughout this discourse. When I'm gone, you will have needs, and all you need to do is ask the Father in my name, and He will give you what you need but here's the balance there's a balance it's like a bridge crossing over the chasm on the one side here of the bridge you do not have because you do not ask that's James chapter 4 and on the other side you ask but do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions James 4 2 and 3 we need to learn how to pray in a way that Jesus said. So go back there to verse number twenty. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. What does he mean by that? It's it's the the name of Jesus is not a mantra. It's not a it's not a magic word. Jesus, boom! you know that's not that's not what it means. It means authority. I am king. So here's a representative of the king going to the father and saying, Father, you who have all and can supply all. The king. I represent the king. And I need this to do his business. Asking in his name. We're seeking a supply because we do His will to advance His kingdom. That's the question we need to ask ourselves. In His name, then, defines the parameters of our asking. We have no authority to request anything of the Father when our desires are outside His will. That's simply that. Can I pray for my children? Yes, absolutely. May I pray that they will be successful? Yes, but only in keeping with the plan and purpose of God. Therefore, I cannot ask that God will make my son a rich lawyer so that he will have all the money he needs for a comfortable lifestyle. That wouldn't be right. That's an imbalance in praying. Now, it may be that the Lord would want my son to be a lawyer so that in the courtroom he can defend persecuted Christians for the gospel. That would be right. You see? So that brings us to this. Jesus brings up two things that, that here are linked together to show what's involved in proper praying. And until now... He said, you've asked nothing in my name. So then he commands them, ask. He commands them, ask. And then promises, you will receive. There it is. Prayer is asking. The answer to prayer is receiving. And then notice the end. That your joy may be full. Ah. So he marries two things together that are absolutely... Essential in the believer's life. The glory of God and the fullness of joy. When God is glorified, and we talked about that last week. When God is glorified, that's when I experience the greatest joy. So you want joy? Glorify God. You want to be fully happy? Because happiness... it that, I really believe happiness is essential to human existence. We were created to be happy. And we cannot be happy outside the will of God. A lot of people think they will be happy, but they're not. They're miserable. If only they would under- could understand. So God's glorified by our asking, and our joy is increased in the receiving. And so now it says, "In that day you will ask in my name, and it that is an affirmative affirmation that when He, the Spirit of God, comes and is working in the believer's life, the believer will pray. And but here's where it gets a little bit sticky. What did Jesus mean then? In the last part of verse 20, when he said, I do not ask, excuse me, I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. He says, You ask. But in that day, I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. Here is a very precious truth Jesus declared to the disciples that in his name does not mean that he was needed as a go-between. They would have direct access to the Father. His name was the authority by which they could ask, but not the access code to enter the Father's presence. Do you see what I'm saying? I can walk into the Father's presence without any access code. And when I get in the Father's presence, I can use His name to grant me authority to ask what I need. And I think this is where the Roman Catholic Church is wrong. We do not need an intercessor. Well, I don't need to pray to the saint who enter, to, to intervene with Mary so that she will tell her son so that he can take it to the Father. <laughs> That's not necessary. Jesus is not here denying that he was their intercessor. We need an intercessor too. We need an intercessor. He went to the right hand of the Father there to make everlasting intercession for us but not as our go-between to the Father. See, this, here's what we need to understand. There's only one intercessor between God and man. That's the man, Christ Jesus. However, his mediation established the limits, then, by which one may have access to the Father. So then, the writer of Hebrews can say to us, in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, I'm quoting the King James because I like it best. Let us, therefore, come boldly under the throne of grace, that we may have mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's come boldly. I don't have to I don't fear the Father in that sense. The mediation has already established the access. He is my mediator, and he pleads to the Father. Five bleeding wounds he bears. They they strongly plead for me. They pour effectual prayers. Forgive him, oh forgive, they cry, nor let that ransomed sinner die. is how this, the hymn writer put it. And the Father looks at me, robed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and says, come on in. Come on in. So we don't need an intermediary to the to, into the presence of the Father. He, Jesus has already established that for us. Then, fourthly, they would enjoy access to the Father because the Father himself loved them. And here's another powerful truth. There's no grudging assent to this. The Father himself wholeheartedly leaping in with both feet. The Father himself loves you. Jesus already made that clear. That he loved them. And they loved him. But what about the Father that they did not see or could not see? Jesus declared to them, he loves you too. However, it's interesting to note Then in this discussion, the love relationship is is expressed on the basis of obedience. Oh, that Christians would understand this. If you go back to John chapter 15, there we read in verses 9 and 10. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept the Father's commandments and abide in his love our relationship our love relationship with the father depends on on a response of obedience and Jesus said this is how it worked with him and now this is how it would work with the disciples as well and further note That his joy would be their joy and their joy would be full in this scenario. This is directly connected to the issue of the prayer life. So praying is an integral part of this loving relationship of obedience that believers have with the Father and the Son. The relationship Jesus had with the Father is what the believers now have with both the Father and the Son. So we read 1 John chapter 1 and verse 3. Indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that your joy, our joy may be complete. So our love to, for the Father is evidenced in our obedience. So Jesus said, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that whatsoever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it you. These things I command you so that, that you will love one another. And another point then must be noted here in John 15. He uses the word agape. Agape. In John 15. But in John 16, when Jesus said that the Father himself loved his disciples, he uses the word phileo Not agape. And I suggest that there's no great distinction between these two words. Translated love. They mean essentially the same thing. The difference is only in that there is in phileo a request or a requirement for reciprocal relationship. Now, here's what I mean. If I phileo you... And you don't respond to me in any way, then that phileo relationship dies. Now, if I agape you, and you don't respond, that doesn't stop. That's therefore Jesus said, "Love one another." Agape one another, which means I'm going to love you no matter what, and you don't, and your and your relationship, your response to that. To that love is not necessary for me to continue to love you. But if I phileo you, that's a different story. It needs your response to me to stay alive. And if it's not there, it dies. We talk about that in the terms of friendship. My father is your friend. For that love requires a response where it cannot be maintained. Then the disciples needed to understand their failure had grave consequences. If you don't obey the Father, if you don't continue in your love to the Father, it puts you in a very bad position with the Father. Now, if you, treat, if you truly are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, he'll, he, he will fix it. And he may fix it with very hard lessons. But he'll fix it. So, let me just give you one lesson here. Observe the clear connection between our love for the Lord and our prayer life. Paul Miller. A very shocking statement. He declared that 90% of Christians do not have a functioning prayer life. That, That is professing Christians do not have a functioning prayer life. Whoa. 90%. When asked about their relationship to God, they confidently said, yes, I'm a child of God. I'm born again. I know Christ is my personal Savior. But when asked about their prayer life, not just praying at meals or, or saying a prayer when asked in a public service setting, most Christians did not have time for the lord they couldn't say that they had this time that they loved that time and couldn't live without it and it's also clear that they didn't spend much time in the word of god either let's pray father thank you for the word lord this is this, this is very heavy and I pray that, Father, that we might acknowledge our own failures in this and confess them to you, repent of them, and change, Lord, by your grace and by your power. We can't do it on our own selves. And we, on our own we can do nothing, but in Christ we can do everything related to this matter. As Paul said in, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me not all things every, you know, anything and everything but all things that relate to your will and your plan so praying and being in the word Father I, what a joy it is to hear Christ say the Father loves you the Father loves you and Lord may we reciprocate that relationship in our obedience to the Father and we thank you and praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.